it's a bit of a contradiction, really. It's divinely inspired, but transcribed by man. God breathed, but man written. And to say book doesn't quite capture it because, well, I'm just a lot more than a book. Being the Bible is about being the Word of God. It's not an easy job, but someone's got to do it. That sounds tough. Yeah, but not everyone could handle being knocked on the floor or brave the dangers of hot, nasty pizza grease. But that's just part of being me. What's my relationship with people like? Well, I'd, I'd say it's complicated. People always come to me for answers, but they don't always like what they find. And it's like, hey, I'm not just some cookie jar. I'm a jar full of um, special cookies. You know, God's favorite cookies. So, definitely not oatmeal raisin. So, what are church services like for you? You know... I told myself I wasn't going to get emotional when you asked about church, but I just love it so much. I love when people open up to one of my books and just start teaching. I just get so excited. I love to preach the Bible because the Bible is God's Word full of the wisdom we need to live life well. And once the sermon starts, we're like a tag team. We're like David and Jonathan. Samson and his, his hair. Cain and... Wait. Nope, that's wrong. If I just had one wish, it would be for people to live what they learn. I don't want them to just study. I want them to act, to give God their whole life. But, like you always say, being good is good enough, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, people keep misquoting me, and (laughs) I never said that. You know what? This interview's over. I'm done. Well, thank you for being here today. Thank you uh, for all of you that watch online. And I want to give a quick shout out to Taylor Walling and to Tim Holt and all their team that worked on these uh, bumper videos before each of the sermons. I think they've done a great job. Thank them if you see them. Absolutely. Now, I have especially lately been sensing the realness of God. I think one reason is because the seasons are changing There is something about the changing of the seasons that just reminds me that this creation has a design. It has an order that we're not here by accident. And it makes me feel that God is real. And another thing that makes me feel God is real, the Rangers are in the playoffs and the Yankees are not. So for him who has eyes to see... See the truth about God. Now, I have given the Yankees a hard time over the years, probably as much as I have given cats a hard time, and that's not really fair because I've actually 
like a few Yankees. And the one that was my favorite just passed away. His name was Yogi Berra. And uh, he became known later in life for his coaching and sort of the comical way he would say things. And so a lot of you that are younger don't know that he really was truly a great baseball player. You can check the stats for yourself. He is a deserved Hall of Famer. But later in life, he became best known for the uh, comical way he would try to express himself. And they became known as yogiisms. Let me share a few with you. For example... Regarding restaurants, he once said, no one goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Regarding the economy, he said, a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. Regarding directions, he said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Regarding fan mail, he said, never answer an anonymous letter. Regarding the great game itself, he said, baseball is 90% mental. The other half is physical which tells me he did not major in math. And one of my favorites, he said, always go to other people's funerals. Otherwise, they won't go to yours. (laughs) But maybe one of the best things he said is, I really didn't say everything I said. And what he was alluding to was that through the years, people would ascribe sayings to him because it just sounded like something Yogi would say. And that's what people do with the Bible. In a culture where there's a lot of Christian expressions, we hear phrases that we think just sound like they would be from the Bible. Like, follow your heart. Or, everything happens for a reason. Or, God would never give you more than you could handle. Or, forgive and forget. And I want to end this series with the most common misperception people have about what the Bible says. And it's very critical that we explore it because it actually has to do with salvation, which makes it the most dangerous misperception that people have. And it is this, that most people think the Bible teaches being good is good enough. Apparently, the most popular defense before God in the minds of people is this, that you need to give God clear evidence that you have basically been a good person. There are many examples of this thinking. For example, recently Warren Buffett, who's, I'm told, the world's second richest man, announced that he was going to give away most of his wealth to charity, which I totally commend, but I cannot commend what he said about it. He said, there is more than one way to go to heaven, but this is a great way. In other words, just find a way to be good, to do something that's good, because being good is good enough. It's what most people say. But the Bible never says it. In fact, the Bible says that be good is bad theology. 
Now, it's feel-good theology. But the Bible says it's no good theology. It does feel good. Because it allows every person to set the bar of righteousness wherever they want to set it. And so it allows a person to be spiritual without really being judgmental. And we hear this all the time. Well, I'm spiritual. I'm just not religious. Now, what does that mean? Well, what it basically means is I will live by a standard of morality that I have decided on. I will hold to certain convictions that I believe are important. In other words, I will go down the cafeteria line and I will put on my tray those moralities and those convictions that I want on my tray. I will create a designer faith and be spiritual. Because after all, being good is good enough. And under this understanding, most religions have merit because they can help you do that and that's what most people think so in the religious world where I tend to live there is a phrase that showed up about 10 years ago called moralistic therapeutic deism it's from a book that was written in 2005 published by two sociologists that interviewed and surveyed thousands of teenagers in America about their religious beliefs. Now, most of these teenagers would have claimed Christianity as their belief system, but it included several other faith traditions and a lot of teens who didn't have a particular faith tradition. But what the researchers found is that it didn't matter. Almost all the teenagers believed basically the same thing, that you should try to be a good person, that God's there if you have a problem, otherwise he's not very involved. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And he said it has five basic tenets that teenagers believe. Here's number one. God exists and made the world. There's a God out there. That's why we're here. Number two. God wants people to be good. Now that's kind of ambiguous because you get to define what good is, but he wants that. And number three. The main goal of life is to be happy. So ultimately, it's all about me. Number four, God isn't too involved unless you need a problem solved. In other words, God basically will mind his own business, but every now and then, you're going to need to say a prayer. And number five, good people go to heaven. And this is what happens when young people come to church. And we tell them what they ought to do. But they don't learn what Jesus has done. You see, all religions basically have this in common. That they're teaching you how to build stairs to reach God. Now, the stairs will differ a little bit. But basically, they have the same rules. Read a lot of this. Pray a lot of that. And do a bunch of this. And you will build the stairs that you need that will be good enough for you to get to God. And nobody believes that you can attain moral perfection. But that's okay. Because everybody knows God grades on the curve. So just be good. Because being good 
is good enough. But the Bible never says that. In fact, when you read the Gospels, you find that Jesus had a total disregard for be-good theology. One of the clearest examples is a story he told about two guys that go to the temple to pray. One guy Jesus called a Pharisee. That just means this guy is a very religious guy. And he prayed to God, reminding God that he was really a good guy. He said, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I have. And he was telling the truth. He really was a good guy. Now, the second guy Jesus called a tax collector. And that doesn't communicate to us, so let me change. He was an ISIS fundraiser. Because that's what Jesus' audience heard when he said tax collector. Tax collectors were the people in Jesus' day that took your money to fund the brutal, sadistic, occupying army. And all this guy could pray is, God, I got nothing. I need mercy. And then Jesus said something that made every jaw drop and every eye get this big. Jesus said, an ISIS guy went home justified before God, but good guy didn't. How's that possible? How can somebody who is so bad be closer to God than somebody who is so good? And Jesus would explain it this way over and over. That my goodness is my greatest barrier to God. You see, the appeal of religion is that it offers a way to measure goodness based on external metrics. And it really does feel good. Because I can find a way to measure myself to you that makes me seem good according to the metrics I've chosen. But the Bible says that you and I are not the standard for measuring goodness. That the standard for goodness is God. And to illustrate that, just a few verses after Jesus told that revolutionary story, a real-life illustration showed up. It says in Luke 18, that a certain ruler... Now, let me stop just a second. Ruler means this guy was a leader in the synagogue. In other words, he's a very, very respected religious guy. Very moral guy. Not only that, but in another gospel, we find out he was a young guy. And we find out in another gospel, he was a rich guy. And understand, in their day, 
the reason you were rich is because God had favor on you. In other words, prosperity theology is not new. They believed if you were rich, it was a sign that you were good. This is the guy every pastor wants to come to his church. You want your daughter to meet this guy in college. And he comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because he believed like everybody else that being good is good enough. So what good thing do I need to do? And Jesus is about to rock his world. And Jesus answered, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. See, this guy thinks like most people. When you stand before God, there's going to be a scale, and all your bad things are going to be on one side, and all your good things are going to be on the other side, and you want the good thing to outweigh the bad. You want a credit sheet that shows a heavy, heavy Balance of good. And here's the problem. This common view is absolutely blown out of the water over and over and over in the Bible for this simple reason. Romans 3, the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. A few years ago, I took my family on a ski trip. We're driving on this two-lane road to to New Mexico, and just before we get to the mountains, I look off to the side, and there's a pasture mainly some grass and mud and a flock of sheep in it. And compared to their dirty background, the wool of the sheep looked rather pristine. So we ski for a few days. While we're there, a big blizzard came through and dumped a ton of snow on that area. So we're driving back on the same road. I look out at the same pasture. This time it is blanketed with a brilliant carpet of fresh white snow. And now those same sheep against that background look filthy. Their wool is dingy and dirty. The same sheep, but a different standard. And that's what Jesus is trying to get this guy to see. Stop comparing your goodness to other people and start comparing it to God. God cares about the poor. Because God is good. You've got a lot of money. So go sell your stuff and give it to the poor and be like God. And what the young man realized is I don't want to be that good. Nobody can be as good as God. And what Jesus exposed is something a lot of people don't get. That there's not really that much difference between very irreligious people and very religious people. They have the same problem. They don't think they need God. The very irreligious person says, I'm going to live my life by my rules. I'm going to do what I want. I don't need God. And the very religious person says, I pray this, I read this, I do this, I don't need God.
And what is amazing is that the bad person recognizes his problem before the good person does. That's why Jesus said one time, you know what? Tax collectors and prostitutes are going to enter the kingdom before good people do. Because your goodness is your greatest barrier to God. And so this guy starts to walk away. And Jesus says, how hard it is for the rich. Now, rich is not just money. It's goodness. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you've heard that verse all your life, and it doesn't have much power to you, so let me reframe it. Now, I'm getting older. And there are a few things on my bucket list I would like to do before I die. For example, I would like to win the Masters at least once (laughs) before I die. I think I look good in green. Another thing I would really like to do at least once before I die is dunk a basketball. And then before I die, I think I would like to be president. Just for one term, just four years, because I'd like to have my own plane. Now let me ask you something. What are the odds? What are the odds that I would ever get elected president? Maybe one in 300 million? But they're better than the odds that I will ever win the Masters. I've put that at about one in a billion. And what are the odds I would ever dunk a basketball? Well, unless you lower the rim to five feet, I'm saying one in a gazillion. Now listen to me. I will be president who has won the Masters and can dunk a basketball before I will be good enough to meet God on my own good terms. And if you feel a little uneasy right now, that's what you're supposed to feel. That's how the disciples felt. Because all their life they were taught being good is good enough. And now the best guy they've ever seen isn't good enough for the kingdom. So they ask the only question that must be asked of Jesus. They turn to Jesus. They say, Who then can be saved if this guy can't be good enough? And listen to the answer. Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What's he saying? Okay, here's the whole sermon in one sentence. Salvation is not a merit. Salvation is a miracle. If we could be saved by being good, why did Jesus need to come? We already had the law of Moses. That will teach you how to build stairs. 
the answer, the reason Jesus came is what separates the good news of Christianity from the good advice of every other religion. And so, the Sunday school teacher's got a kindergarten class, and she says, so if I sold my house and my car and gave all my money to the church, could I go to heaven? They said, no. Well, what if I came and worked at the church all day, and I cleaned the building and I mowed the yard? Could I go to heaven then? And all the kids said, no. Well, what if I was nice to all the animals, and I went to the hospitals, and I gave all the sick children candy? Could I go to heaven then? And they said, no. And the teacher said, so what do I got to do to go to heaven? And the little boy says, you got to be dead. (laughs) Because Jesus didn't come to save good people. He came to save dead people. And a dead person can't do anything. To become better. You see the good news. Is the gift. Of God's goodness through Christ. Jesus didn't come. To help people get better. He came to help people get born again. Because we weren't good. We were dead in our sins. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 2. And then he says in verse 8 and 9, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. You can't feel good because by your metrics you measure higher than somebody else. Titus chapter 3, Paul says, He saved us not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us not a way to get better. He gave us birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of His grace, now remember, God cannot lie, right? God declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Now, if we're not good and God can't lie, how could he declare us righteous? And the answer is, God sees goodness in us when he sees us in his good Son, for all who have been baptized into Christ are clothed with Christ. And so one of the most amazing verses in the whole Bible, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Christ had no sin, but God made him become sin, not his sin, our sin, so that in Christ we could become right. With God. Listen to me. The good news is not better stairs. 
The good news is that Jesus is our lift. We're not saved by being good. We're saved by believing in Jesus. And in God's promise to transfer his goodness to us. Because salvation is not a merit. It is a miracle. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. I have a friend who a few years back was finishing his time in seminary trying to get a very prestigious theological degree. And in his oral exam, he sat in a room with professors. One gave him a Hebrew text and said, read that for me. One gave him a Greek text and said, read that for me. They asked him several complicated theological problems. And then toward the end, one of the professors said, what is necessary for salvation? And my friend thought, now what angle does he want? He thought of all the different verses and all the different theories of atonement. He started down that long road. And the professor got more and more perturbed. And finally he just stopped him and said, you've been in this school for several years and you don't know what's necessary for salvation? God. God is necessary for salvation. Because what is important? possible for you is possible for God. No one's going to get to heaven and say, I helped. That's what our two sacraments remind us. God has given the church two things to do, to baptize and to share the Lord's Supper. Have you ever noticed how passive we are in both? Someone baptizes you. Someone serves you the communion to remind us that salvation is a gift. Because being good is not good enough. Jesus is good enough. And that is very good news to everybody that knows they will never be good enough. Now, is what I'm saying too good to be true? I would answer the gospel is too good not to be true. I'll say again, people who say our religions are basically the same have not studied our religions. Christianity is so different. Every other religion says, here's a way to build a set of stairs and to be good. Christianity says, you were so bad, God had to become one of you and die in your place. Nobody would make up something like that. There is only one religion that says, it is finished. And will let you get off The try-to-be-better treadmill. And so, dozens of times, I've had a conversation with someone 
who I'm imploring to accept Christ. And they'll say something like, but you don't know my whole story and you don't know my past. You don't know how dirty I feel. I'm not good enough to be a Christian. And my answer is always the same. I'm not a Christian because I'm so good. I'm a Christian because I'm too bad to be anything else. I'll never build a set of stairs to reach a holy God. I need a lift. And I'm telling you this morning, and I want you to listen, because right now, someone is listening to me, and you're wrestling with what I'm teaching, and eternity is in the balance. The worst form of human badness is human goodness substituted for the blood of Jesus. Not a single person listening to me right now is so good that you do not need to be born again. And not a single person listening to me is so bad that you cannot be born again. And what you have to decide, because we are all going to meet God, are you going to face Him trusting in your goodness or in His? And it's so important. I need to pray over you. So, Father, I know there's someone listening to me right now. They don't feel good enough. And they don't quite understand that's exactly where they need to be. Just begging for mercy. Offering nothing to Jesus but a heart ready to be filled with grace. I pray that they can hear that today. But I'm also praying right now for that person who feels pretty good about themselves not understanding that their pride is their barrier I'm praying that your Holy Spirit will convict them and bring them to repentance so that they too can fall to their knees and ask for mercy Because none of us are good enough. But Jesus is good enough for all of us. And so right now, as angels hold their breath, God, bring people to Jesus. For His name's sake. Amen. Please stand. If you're on our prayer team upstairs or downstairs, please take your place. We offer the gift of prayer today.
And most of all, today, we offer the chance to be baptized into Jesus, requesting His goodness. Because at the end of the day, you've got to decide whose goodness am I going to trust. Please come.